Second reading this morning comes from the 58th chapter of the book of Isaiah, beginning with the 14th verse. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. We have fasted and you see it not. We have humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it. Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is the fast that I chose a day for a person not uh, to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? Is not this the fast that I chose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then you shall light, then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desires of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom as the noonday. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desires in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. And you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of the streets to dwell in. If you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The New Testament lesson this morning comes from the 14th chapter of Luke, beginning with the first verse. One Sabbath, he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, and they were watching him carefully. Behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. They took him, he took him and healed him and sent him on his way. And then he said to them, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply to these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's turn to Luke. Chapter 14, the passage we read with Greg just a few moments ago. As we have come to our study in Luke, to the 14th chapter, a 
you need to know at the beginning of this chapter that it should be taken as a unit, one unit. It looks like that, well, it, it should be three different units, but it's not. It's one unit. Uh, the subject, the theme is the same. At the beginning of this week, I was uh, prepared to cover this in one message. But the more I read, the more I thought about it, I knew that I didn't want to do that. I wanted to deal with, to break it down into two or three parts. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, this, uh, the, we may break the 14th chapter into three parts. We may only break it into two. Uh, and I think you'll see why uh, as in, in the next couple of Sundays. Let's pray together and ask the Father to teach us. Now, Father, we bow before you. We come now as priests together. Shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, side by side, praying, asking for the people around us, for each other, for Fayette County. Our Father, we remember those in our congregation who, as of late, have been hurting have been through trials. Our Father, we thank you that Jim Bennington is here this morning. We ask your blessing in thanksgiving upon him, your continued blessing. We thank you that Billy Griggs is here this morning. We thank you for how you have strengthened him. We pray that our Father, you would strengthen both of these men physically, that you would strengthen them spiritually that they might continue to be encouraged and an encouragement. Our Father, we pray for Priscilla Turner, that you would grant strength to her during this time. We pray that you would bring healing. Father, we will not stop praying that you would heal her. But Father, we also pray that you would sustain her spiritually. Give her eyes to see what you have prepared for her. Our Father, we pray for Rick Abernathy's father that you would use the coming procedure to bring healing to his life. Father, we pray for the marriages of this congregation. We pray for the relationship of children and parents. Our Father, we pray that through the covenant parents of this congregation, you would empower these families and that a generation would be raised up out of Christ Presbyterian like Fayette County has never seen. Oh, Father, bless 
in this. Father, we pray for the farmers of Fayette County, that you would continue to prosper them in this summer of 2018. We pray that these fields will yield a good crop. Bless, Father, in this, for it's in your hands. And now we pray and we ask that you would teach us as we open your word. Father, we have spoken to you. We have prayed. We have, Father, sung the hymns of Zion, the hymns of your faithfulness and goodness. We've spoken to you. And now we wait before you to hear your word. Father, we prayed in these next few minutes that we will not hear John Sartell. We pray that we will hear your spirit speaking to us in our hearts. Change us, Father. Continue to change us. Maybe change some of us for the first time. In Jesus' name, amen. What you see in these first six verses is a warning from Jesus. A warning that dead ritual can replace a living relationship. That's with his people. Dead ritual can replace a living relationship. Most of you know that Herman Melville wrote the novel Moby Dick. He also wrote another novel called White Jacket. In that novel, a sailor becomes ill with severe stomach pain. The ship's surgeon is named Dr. Cuttacle. Isn't that a Great name for a surgeon, Cuttacle. And he is thrilled because he usually is dealing with burns or cuts or blisters or simple things. But here is a, a major, major problem that challenges him. And so the sailors lay down on a makeshift operation table. He enlists the help of, of other sailors to help him. And you can imagine just the primitive circumstances there aboard that ship. And, and an incision is made. And Dr. Cullock is just carried away that finally he can show his stuff to these sailors. And he starts explaining all the different parts of what they're saying in the abdomen and, and goes down part by part. And the sailors are just fascinated. And finally he comes to the appendix and he is, is, is diseased and he removes it. And then he begins slowly to back it out and again showing the sailors what they had never seen. It was impressive, but it really wasn't because long before he closed the incision, the sailor on the table had died. And Dr. Cuttacle was so in to what he was doing. He didn't even know it. And the sailors did not want to tell him. The Pharisees in the passage before us this morning were just like Dr. Cuttacle in that surgery. They were busy that day practicing their faith. They had just come from the synagogue. They were busy practicing their religious 
rituals. They were punctilious about observing every detail. But they failed to know that it was all for naught. Their religion was dead. All their efforts really meant nothing. Their relationship to God was dead. Now, people, they were working hard at their religion. Much harder than we probably worked this week. They were striving hard for their faith. This should scare us. They used the Bible like we used the Bible. They had the Old Testament. They sought to obey the commandments. They were looking for the Messiah. Yet, it was all for naught. Their faith was dead. We use the Bible. We strive to obey its commandments. Like them, we're looking for the Messiah. We're looking for his return. This forces me to ask about John Sartell. Is my faith in the practice, my faith, is, is it dead? It forces us question. That's a question for the house this morning, for each one of us and for Christ Presbyterian Church. How do we know when the patient is dead? How do we know when our faith is all for naught? Well, let's see in this passage the answer to that question. We know our faith in Christ is dead when criticism replaces compassion. Look at verses 1 and 2. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsies. Now, it's that time of year. Fraternities and sororities will have parties at the beginning of the school year. And these are not just parties to have a wonderful time. They invite certain people to those parties. And they watch them very, very carefully to see if they will fit this specific fraternity, this specific sorority. The people going to these parties, the freshmen going to these parties, know that they are being watched and they're apt to be criticized or commended. We've, we've all been there, maybe not with sororities or, or fraternities. But we, we've walked into rooms, to places and times at work, Classroom, wherever, where we know we're being watched, where we know we're being observed, and where we know that not all eyes are friendly. That is exactly what was happening in the Pharisee's house that Sabbath afternoon. They had just left the local synagogue. The leader of the synagogue, a prominent man, had said to Jesus, come to my house for dinner. That's a great thing, isn't it? The Pharisee? Saying that to Jesus, if they had not invited him out of hospitality and love, they invited him to critique him, to observe. They had set a trap. They invited a man who was suffering from dropsy to come to the same meal, and they placed him right near Jesus, where Jesus couldn't miss him. Dropsy was a disease that was manifested by a swelling 
of, of the torso, swelling in the stomach and chest cavities. It usually uh, indicated uh, a retention of, of fluids. It usually indicated the organ failure. This man was probably terminally ill. That's what they did. They went out and got him. Here, Jesus, come. And they set this man, man right before him, knowing what Jesus is apt to do. What was their concern? They wanted to use him to bait Jesus. They were saying, Jesus, you dare to heal this man. You dare to heal this man and break our sacred Sabbath. We've heard that's what you've done in other places. You couldn't be the Messiah. That's what this scene was. That was done in the name of their faith. This man was dying. Will you come and have dinner and tempt Jesus to heal you? Where was their compassion? They were saying it would be a sin for you, for Jesus to heal him. What, would, what was it, Jesus? They were punctilious about the law. They loved the law. They would have told you that the law of God was their greatest love. Uh, uh, one of the Pharisees, a lawyer, had once asked him, what's the greatest commandment, Jesus? You have it there in Matthew 22, 37 on your scripture sheet. And he said to him, here's the greatest. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. He was saying all of the law is either telling us to love God or it's telling us to love our neighbor. The first four laws, the first table of the law, the first four of the Ten Commandments, they shout to us, love God. The last six, the second table of the law, shout to us, love your neighbor. These men would have told you that, that they lived to keep these commandments. They had written volumes. And yet, as Jesus pointed out, they treated their animals. They treated their cattle with more compassion than they treated this man. They, they didn't have compassion, but they had plenty of criticism. They were there to point their finger. We have seen all through the loop that this was one of the characteristics of the Pharisees. From their lofty moral position, they criticized everything around them. No one was as good as they were. That is the great temptation of conservative churches and conservative Christians. From a lofty attitude, a lofty attitude, a, a lofty, proud morality to criticize. 
You say, John, but we've got to have discernment. That's true. Sometimes we must say something, but how do we say it? It's never from the attitude of a lofty morality. It's from the attitude, you know what? I have failed miserably every day this week. You know what? I know you have this going on in your life, and I have to tell you this, but, you know, I'm, I'm not better than you are. There's a big difference. These people were so caught up, so caught up in what they were doing. They took a dying man. And used him. People, when we're doing that in our faith, and we do things like that. When we do that, what this passage is telling us, our faith is dead. Our keeping of our practice of the faith is dead. Where's our compassion? You can know your practice or your faith is dead when religious ritual becomes something to be served rather than a blessing to be enjoyed. Look at verse 3. And Jesus responded to the lawyers and Pharisees saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? You see, Jesus, he, he was not naive about what they were doing. He knew exactly what they were He saw the man with drops. I mean, it's, it, 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 he was a plant. And Jesus knew it. And so he looked at the men straightforwardly. And he said, guys, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, these men were very religious. They were dressed religiously. They had just come from synagogue. These were experts in the law. And so Jesus asked them, to them, a theological question. Is it legal to heal on the Sabbath? Now, if God had indeed commanded no healing should take place on the Sabbath, that would be a sin. But folks, you could not find in their scriptures where God had said you shall not heal on the Sabbath. They had added hundreds and hundreds of do's and don'ts. We've talked about them previously. To the keeping of the Sabbath. They had a long list. Hundreds. Of extra laws. That they had added to the Sabbath. The Sabbath day. Had become a virtual straitjacket, Imprisoning those. Who tried to keep the Sabbath. The subject had been there before. Many times. In earlier in Mark 2.27. It's there on your scripture sheet. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. What did Jesus mean? He was saying that the Sabbath was meant to be a service to man. The Sabbath was meant to be a blessing for man. Man was not meant to be a slave to the Sabbath. It was to be a source of joy, of comfort, of blessing. God did not say, I have made the Sabbath, and now I'm going to make man to serve the Sabbath. 
That's not what he said. He made man and he said, now, oh man, I'm going to give you a great gift. I'm going to create the Sabbath. A day of rest, a day of worship. That you may rest from your normal labors and you can enjoy the God who made you. When Jesus asked, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? He was saying, of course it is. Your laws are man-made. The Sabbath is to be enjoyed. Men, women, boys, and girls should be healed on the Sabbath day. It's a day of physical and spiritual healing. A day of joy and singing. It's a day that God made to be a blessing. Honestly, did he make the day to be a blessing or an oppression? And it had become an oppression. The real irony is this. There stands Jesus. Who is he? If you take nothing else away from this, see this. Jesus is the Sabbath. He is our Sabbath. He is our rest. That's what the New Testament teaches us. What did Jesus say? Come unto me, all ye that labor. Labor. Those six days, all ye that labor, come unto me. All ye that are heavy laden, come unto me. And what? I will give you rest. It's a powerful message here for us. We need not only to learn the truth about the Lord's day, that it should be a blessing, but about every part of our life with Christ. The point is this. Your faith is dead when the ritual becomes something to be served rather than a blessing to be enjoyed. All through my Christian life, I've been able to pick times when I've been a slave. When, 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 when I've, been, I've been serving something and it's oppressive instead of enjoying it, instead of being blessed by it. I can tell you that I was guilty as these Pharisees about the Lord's Day and about other things. We make the Lord's Day, reading our Bibles, prayer, anything like that, instead of a blessing. It, it, it's, it becomes a burden. I was not made to serve Bible reading and prayer. That's not why God gave us his word and gave us God, Scripture, Bible reading, and prayer were created by God to serve us. To be a blessing, to be a relief. Now I'm not saying that God serves me, no. I was made to serve God, to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. But the Lord's day, God's word, prayer, marriage, you can name all these blessings. These things were given to us by God to serve us, to be used by us, to be enjoyed by us. When I first read this story, I said, somebody's got to have made this up. And then I started thinking about all the history of the church and how far off we can get as Christians and how far off I've seen churches get. I've seen them this far off. It happened in Canada uh, in, the, in the cold, cold country 
of the Northland. And it was the Lord's Day, and there had been this awful, awful snow, and it was so cold. And the minister uh, in this town that was on this lake, the minister wasn't able to get to church by ordinary means. He said, the one way I know I can get there uh, is, is to use the lake. And so he put on his ice skates, and he skated across the lake. And then he, he walked a shorter distance to church. And there were some people there. And the elders of the church, when they realized what he had done, they pulled him aside and said, we can't believe that you skated on the Lord's Day. Why did you do that? He said, it's the only way I could get to church. He said, it's either stay home or skate. And one elder said, did you enjoy it? And the preacher said, no. He said, it's all right now. You know, that speaks volumes. That's what was happening here. You know your faith is dead. Criticism replaces compassion. When religious ritual becomes something that we serve rather than being blessed to be enjoyed. Thirdly, our Christianity is dead. When rich, when rigid duty, uh, when rigid, when rigid duty to a dead law, a lifeless law, replaces a dynamic relationship with God. Look again at verse one. On the Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of the ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now step back and look at the scene. We know what the scene is. The Messiah had come to dinner. The long-awaited Messiah had come to dinner. Jesus was in the house. Jesus was at the table. Think about that. What would you pay to have been there? Jesus in your home. Physically. The long-awaited Messiah there. And they missed it. They were brought, brought him there to critique him. You want to say, well, they didn't, you know, the reason that happened is they didn't believe he was Messiah. That's not what happened. They didn't believe he was Messiah. That's true. But that's not what caused this. This, their relationship with God had died long before that. It had disappeared. This book is not about, first and foremost, obedience to the law of God. It's about a people who have broken the laws of this book at every point. It's about a people who cannot be saved by obedience to the law. They didn't understand that. They didn't understand that first and foremost was to be a relationship with God Almighty. You say, well, that's, that's you know, maybe from the New Testament you get that, but from the Old Testament, no, in the Old Testament it was very plain. God told them over and over and over again, 
the passage that we read this morning, that's why we read from Isaiah 58. You know why? You said, what does this have to do with it? It's a perfect commentary on Luke 14. And, and God said, you do all these things. You fast, but there's no reality to it. And you don't know me. That was the problem. Look at Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him boast, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. He didn't say obeys me. He said knows me. God changed. Why did God change our hearts in the power of his Holy Spirit? So that we could have a relationship with him. When I read this passage this morning, when I read this passage this week, and I realized Jesus is standing in this man's house. Revelation, the, the passage in Revelation 3.20 just came out of the recesses of my mind. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and I will eat with him and he with me. It's about a relationship, people. When we replace that relationship, with cold obedience to a dead law. It's useless. Might as well close the doors of the church. We can know our faith is dead when criticism replaces compassion, when religious ritual becomes something to be served rather than a blessing to be enjoyed, when rigid duty to lifeless law replaces a dynamic relationship to God. Finally, Listen to this. This is, this is so good. Our Christianity is dead when proud self-sufficiency replaces our neediness. Jesus asked them, is it wrong? Is it a sin to heal on the Sabbath? And they remained silent. And Jesus took the man, healed him, and he sent him home. The man with dropsy was the only man there. There was something about him that no one else there had. What was it? He knew he was needy. <laughs> he knew he needed to be healed. He may have been sitting there saying, I'm glad the Pharisees chose me for this. Because I think Jesus is going to throw up their face. He knew he needed to be healed. The Pharisees... What would their mind? They had to go out and find a needy person. They were so unneedy. They were so self-fulfilled. They were so proud in their morality. They were so proud of their religion. They didn't have any need. They were so proud that they could critique Jesus, who was sinless. I, I, I thought when I was looking at this, I, I just, what an irony. That these good men had to go out and find someone that was needy. You know, this is sad. Many, many, many people that will sit in churches across our land today will come and sit. You press them, they're going to say, 
we're, we're saved by our good works. They may give lip service to Jesus. But they go to a good man's funeral and they say, you just can't tell me that man, even if the man's a professing you're not a Christian, you just can't tell me that man is lost. It's dangerous, folks. When we came in this morning, when I came in this morning, did I come in? And did I see John Sartell as really needy? Did I see that I was needy not not just because of Janet? But did I see I was needy? Because I've walked all over God's law all week long. I've rebelled against him all week long. In fact, it is impossible for me to ever come to this room and not be needy. I can't come here. And I don't care what you think about yourself. You can't come here without being needy. But Jesus, he asks us, how are you? I'm fine. I'm fine. A few years ago, a man I knew committed suicide. I was surprised, and at first opportunity, I asked his minister, what happened? The man said, it's just tragic, John. He said his, his son had become an alcoholic, become addicted to drugs. The son's business had gone down and had put pressure on the father's business and put father and on the father's marriage and and just spiraled downward. The father committed suicide. He said, you know, the irony is that I went to him. And I said, look, you need help. And, and I can help you. He said he had two wealthy friends, very wealthy, very close. He'd known all their lives. And they came to him and tried to help him. He said, no, 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 no. I'm fine. I'm all right. Just let it be. Minister said, John, he killed himself because he was too proud to be needy. Folks, there's something worse than physical suicide. And that is killing ourselves spiritually. Because we're too proud to be needy. When Jesus asks you, how are you? Don't ever tell him you're fine. Because (laughs) you're not. You'll never come here that you don't need the blood of Jesus. That you don't need the cross of Jesus Christ. That you don't need this table. That you don't need repentance. That you don't need forgiveness. Our closing hymn.
is a hymn that talks about relationship. It's one that we have not sung. We've sung it about five or five years ago here. Uh, My Jesus, I love thee. I think many of you know it from uh, other churches or from your past. But listen, uh, as Jay plays through the first stanza, I think you'll recognize uh, the melody. <laughs> 